0: God chose the lover when I was medicine, and God showed the die five eight. God chose the when I was dead and God showed the die for boom, five, eight. God chose the Chosen mother. God chose the, lover, chose the God chose the boom, boom, five eight. God chose the mother when I was a sin. God chose the die from me. Room five eight. God chose the mother when I was a sin. God chose the die from me. Room five eight. God chose the mother. Chosen mother. God chose the mother. Chosen mother. God chose the mother. Room five eight.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. We're finally doing it. It's been about two weeks since we started that Jesus Is series. Um, And then I took a break, talked about the Mosaic Law, talked about the Sabbath, talked about dietary laws. And so we're finally able to continue this sermon series titled Jesus Is. And today it's all about how Jesus is the wisdom, um, the wisdom of God. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will tell us. So let me tell you where we're going today. Just so everyone can, as everyone's coming in, just give you an outline. We're going to talk about how um, there's wisdom in the Old Testament. And it's almost like a placeholder for what Jesus is going to be uh, when he comes on the scene. And when he comes from heaven to humanity, he's going to be called wisdom from God. So in 1 Corinthians 1, we'll look at that. And then we'll look at how Jesus is actually our wisdom in the New Testament. And then what that wisdom looks like to actually walk in. I think a lot of you want wisdom. A lot of you are here because you want to know what it looks like to have wisdom, to function in wisdom. What is real wisdom? And how do I discern between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that's truly from God? Heavenly wisdom. I understand that you guys, everyone's here for a different reason. But at the end of the day, I, I pray that wisdom um, would fill us today. And wisdom can refer to um, insight. It can refer to uh, a divine kind of wisdom. It can refer to uh, a skill when when people in the Old Testament were like building the tabernacle or the temple, uh, they were operating by the spirit of wisdom in their craft or in their skill. And so um, specifically the kind of wisdom we'll be looking at um, is this understanding, uh, this kind of wisdom that is uh, applied knowledge, of course, but is rooted in an understanding and it's sourced in God. Okay, so there's a kind of wisdom that we should avoid that looks and presents itself as wisdom, but it's no wisdom at all. And then there's the kind of wisdom that's actually true to who God is. So let me take you to 1 Corinthians 1. I think everyone's here that's going to be here. And if you're not, you'll get here. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. This is kind of the, uh, I guess this series is based on this passage. 1 Corinthians one, thirty. it says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And so throughout this Jesus's series, we've been, We've, so far, we've only done one episode, but we're going to talk about how Jesus is described with certain objects or in a a noun kind of sense, as opposed to an adjective like God is merciful, or God is gracious, or God is kind, God is patient. Instead, we're going to look at things like Jesus is righteousness, or Jesus is wisdom, right, or Jesus is perfection, or Jesus is, you know, all these different things that we see in the scripture, grace embodied, truth embodied. So today we're looking at wisdom, how Jesus actually became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus here is described uh, as these things so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. All right. So when we say that Jesus is wise, that's true. That's a true statement. When we say he's wisdom, that's different. That's saying he's the essence, the personification and the definition of wisdom itself. I am not. I can operate in wisdom, but that doesn't make me the actual source and personification of wisdom itself. I'm not the perfect essence of wisdom. Jesus is. He's complete, completely fundamentally different from every other human being. We can still operate in that wisdom. We can live by his wisdom, but we don't become wisdom embodied with arms and legs. Jesus is. So let me take you to Deuteronomy four. Where we're gonna see uh, the first instance of, well, explicit uh, instance of wisdom. And it's actually in reference to doing the statutes and the commands that God gives to Israel. Okay, so uh, the Lord says, see, to the nation of Israel, I've taught you statutes. I've taught you rules um, as the Lord my God commanded me. So this is Moses talking on behalf of God. That you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Right. So, so do these commandments and statutes. Keep them and do them. And what will happen? Well, for that will be your Wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. What peoples? The nations. The surrounding nations will see wisdom and understanding and recognize there's a divine attribute to that because of the fact that you're walking in the ways of God. They'll be astounded and they'll say, clearly God is the God of Israel really is among his people. Clearly these really are the people of God by the wisdom and understanding they live by that's being presented to us in their lifestyle. So wisdom is going to be an understanding is more than just the intellect, right? It's more than just um, uh, the brain and the logic and the reasoning and the critical thinking and the information and facts and the data. It's about living out and actually applying the knowledge you have. And, and the gap between knowledge and wisdom is gonna be understanding. So I can know something, but when I come to understand it, now I have the framework to actually apply it appropriately. And so understanding in the sight of the peoples is what Israel, it was always designed to have. When God chose Israel, his chosen nation, he pulled them out so that they would be the beacon of light and hope and joy and love in the world. And since they failed, Jesus ends up being what Israel and every other human failed to be. And so it'll be their wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They will look at the the way Israel operates and functions as a people, and they'll go, dang, that's wisdom. That's understanding. Whether or not they adapt it and conform to it is a different story, but they will at least look at it and recognize, wow, there must be a divine source to that wisdom. Um, In Deuteronomy 34, verse nine, we see Joshua. uh, Joshua the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Moses passes the mantle of leadership. And so now Joshua is going to take over and lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. Moses couldn't. And so now we see Joshua is filled with the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and they did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua is going to be filled with the very same Spirit of Wisdom that Moses had. The very same Spirit of Wisdom, you might say, uh, that we see being implemented in creation. We see the Spirit hovering over, over the waters. We see the Spirit of God, and actually Proverbs will say that God, by Wisdom, established the foundations of the earth. By Wisdom created the world. Then we go to Colossians, and it'll say that all things exist through Christ. Hebrews, that the world was made through Him. And so we have all these different scriptures bringing it together to let you know that wisdom is a is a big part of how God operates and who God is and who will see Jesus to be. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to see uh, King Solomon, which arguably <laughs> both the smartest or both the wisest and the dumbest king to ever live. <laughs> I, I say that like, both lightheartedly and in a serious way, like he really was super wise, but he really was very foolish, very foolish. And I don't think wisdom, or look at the wisdom Solomon prays for. The way he ends his life is not the way he starts his reign. He ends his life in idolatry, pagan worship, uh, sexual immorality, it's seemingly, okay, at least he's got thousands of concubines and wives, uh, different issue but still connected to the issue of lacking the application of wisdom. So he seems to depart from God um, in his latter years. Uh, Not saying he's not in heaven. Uh, Potentially something happened in between, you know, that time of rebellion and idolatry and his death that we don't know of. Um, So I'm not going to say he's not in heaven, but he did end like a lot of his, 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 his his last years were spent in idolatry and pagan worship. And so, but this is how he starts off his reign, okay? Uh, God actually visits Solomon and he goes, Solomon, um, I'm gonna give you whatever it is that you want. Ask what I shall give you. Here's how Solomon responds. And Solomon is a great example. He's a case study of, it's not just about how you start. It's about how you finish life. (laughs) It's not just about what you start. Everyone can start something. (laughs) People are very good at starting things. Seeing things through and finishing them, now, that's that's something worth looking at. That's something worth noting. So he goes, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Like, those are some big shoes to fill. Even though I'm just a little child, I, I don't know how to go out or come in. Now, he's not an actual child, like age-wise. He's an actual child when it comes to knowledge and wisdom. I, I don't know how to go out or come in. So he's talking about his ability to lead his ability to, to discern and recognize what's wisdom and how to lead the people of God. In that sense, he's, he's, he's like a child. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. So here's Solomon's request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. It's right here. Give me an understanding mind to govern. So it's not just wisdom in and of itself. Wisdom isn't just the end goal. It's wisdom for a purpose. It's give me an understanding mind to actually govern your people well, to shepherd and lead and care for your people so that I can discern between good and evil. This is bringing us back to Genesis 3. It's almost giving you an indication of what could have happened should Adam and Eve have asked for what the serpent presented without God. The serpent goes, You can know good and evil on your own terms. Adam and Eve should have and could have gone to God and said, Hey, we heard there's this thing that we don't have, this, this knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, God would have given it in, in the right way. Not in a way where they're familiar with evil, but in a way where they could discern between good and evil. Um, and have like a greater mind to actually govern the earth. So Solomon becomes uh, almost a small, small glimpse into uh, what Adam and Eve could have been should they have asked for wisdom and discernment instead of giving into the serpent's temptation. They could have had the more understanding, more of that discernment and wisdom to actually govern and and cultivate the earth and make image bearers. But instead, they fell for the servant's temptation. So, I mean, good on Solomon for doing this. Not a lot of people would ask for wisdom if God comes down and says, I'll give you anything you want. Well, money, power, that's gonna be at the top of the list. But for Solomon, it's, I need to govern your people well. That requires understanding I don't have in discernment. Uh, who is able to govern your great people, right? Uh, Second Chronicles 1.10 will actually uh, recount this same situation. And what happens is uh, Solomon actually says, Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. Um, and so the understanding mind there is, is the wisdom, which Proverbs will say requires and is the fear of the Lord. Uh, you go down to verse 28 of that same chapter in First Kings, and Solomon's got wisdom. Solomon actually got what the Lord asked or said he would give. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. Uh, This is like Solomon's first opportunity to show the wisdom God gave. And they all stood in awe of the king because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So wisdom always comes with a purpose. Wisdom always has a reason attached to it. We don't just have wisdom or want wisdom for the sake of just being wise. I want to navigate life well. I want to honor God faithfully. I want to be able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, and avoid error, and actually walk in the truth. That requires wisdom. So wisdom is not an end in and of itself. And I think a lot of believers will ask for wisdom simply because they see people in the scriptures asking for wisdom. But God gives wisdom for a purpose. It's so that you can actually live a life that honors him. So you can actually reach people in a wise manner and disciple and teach and live obediently and fulfill the calling he's placed on your life. So Proverbs 120 actually talks about wisdom. Uh, It's all about wisdom. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the marketplaces, she raises her voice. So one of my favorite verses because it just takes the restrictive barriers off wisdom and lets you know that you can actually learn and gain the wisdom of God in all the different avenues of life. we often limit wisdom to the scriptures and say, well, the only form of wisdom that God presents us and gives us is going to be found in the scriptures. Apart from that, there is no wisdom. Now I I would pause and say, well, I I don't think true wisdom will ever contradict what we see in the scripture, but that doesn't mean that God only gives us wisdom through his word that we have in in the Bible. I think wisdom can come through, come through a number of the countless different, you know, different uh, methods, people, situations, right? I can actually learn from my failures and actually learn, hey, I don't want to do that next time or I don't want to do it like that or, or in that timing and I can reformat the way I do it the next time. There's wisdom. So wisdom is presented in, in the streets, in the commonplace, in the marketplace where everyone is just, you know, uh, engaging in business. Wisdom can be found if you listen. If you listen, and what's interesting is since Jesus is going to be compared to uh, the wisdom that comes from God, he has—he is actually wisdom. He became to us wisdom. Um, Jesus is going to be someone who declares the truth, and he'll say that. Um, well, I don't have to go there, but the point is that Jesus will be an itinerant preacher, declaring and preaching the truth and the wisdom of God, and so he will be uh, lifting his voice, not to be seen, right, not to make a spectacle. But for the purpose of, remember wisdom always has a purpose, for the purpose of leading people to the Father. Um, Proverbs 19.10 will tell us that, you know, wisdom actually requires something as a prerequisite. Um, Did I get the wrong verse? Is it Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts where you begin to fear the Lord where the fear of the Lord actually comes into your life, now you have the foundation for real wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you want to have wisdom, if you want to operate uh, and and grow in knowledge, some of you are like, you are hungry for knowledge. You're hungry for truth. You long for wisdom, because you recognize you've lived a life for so long without the wisdom of God, that you almost want to compensate for the years you've spent without his wisdom. And you want to make up for it by just eating up all the wisdom he has. Now, I just want to caution you and let you know. Again, wisdom is not an end in, it, in and of itself. Wisdom has a purpose. And God tells us how to actually walk in wisdom. It starts with fearing him. And so true wisdom will always be um, almost framed up by the fear of God. And so real wisdom that actually is aligned with truth and is effective and benefits the world. That wisdom will almost be sourced in a healthy reverence and respect of God. To fear the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. And then we can talk about fearing the Lord is turning away from evil, right? Fearing the Lord is all these different things, but it's primarily to reverence and to fear and stand in awe of God. It is a healthy fear respect. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so God's inviting us into wisdom and insight. But ultimately, knowledge and wisdom seen in the Old Testament scriptures, whether it's in the law, whether it's in the prophets, whether it's in the narrative itself, right? Whether it's in the writings and the Psalms, all the wisdom and knowledge you see is ultimately testifying of the one who is wisdom, the one who is perfect knowledge, and that's going to be Christ. The last Old Testament scripture we'll look at, and this by no means is like an exhaustive teaching on wisdom, but it's at least to get you started and get you going the right direction. Isaiah chapter 11, prophesying of uh, the coming Messiah, the coming King of David, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, okay? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesus is the one that actually descends from the lineage of Jesse, right? He's one of the, um, he's the true King of Israel, right? So the Spirit of the Lord, here's how he's described, right? The one that shoots up from the root of Jesse, from the stump of Jesse, The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's what's going to be upon the coming Messiah and the King of Israel, Jesus. So this is how we see Jesus operate, is in a healthy reverence and fear of the Lord. And that results in knowledge, counsel, might, wisdom, understanding. And it's because of the fact that the spirit of the Lord rests upon him. So um, more than Jesus being a wise guru, that new wisdom and light and love, Jesus is presented as, yes, operating in the spirit of wisdom. And yes, showing us what the ideal perfect human is supposed to be that we all failed to be. But mainly, that doesn't, that doesn't minimize his divinity. He really comes as the actual wisdom of God. A wisdom personified, if you put arms and legs on wisdom itself, that's Christ. So now we can go to Matthew chapter 12, and we can start to look at how Jesus is actually our wisdom in the New Testament. Not just in the New Testament, but scriptures that are um, primarily in the New Testament. Matthew 12, verse 42. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, um, has a field day, lovingly roasting the Pharisees. But he does roast them. It's for their benefit, though. He exposes them so they can turn and, you know, cling to the truth. And part of um, this loving roast fest is he talks about how the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. And he's talking to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, that generation of Jesus's day. He says the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus compares himself to Jonah to say, I'm the better, greater Jonah. You know, when the Ninevites saw Jonah, heard his preaching, they turned, they repented, right? Um, And uh, you guys have something better and you're not repenting. That's why there will be greater condemnation for you guys. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation. Who's the queen of the south? Uh, In Solomon's day, she's referred to as the Queen of Shabbat. Uh, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, she actually came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She's presented as a pagan queen uh, from a pagan nation, but she's heard uh, rumblings of this great wisdom from the nation of Israel. She's heard of this great wisdom, and it's Solomon. Solomon's known for his wisdom. As much as he's known for his great failure, and his great lapse in judgment, and like how wise a man can be, yet how simultaneously foolish he can be, while he's known for that, like he actually had um, a reputation in his day for being the wisest king. Not just in his day, but the wisest king in general up to that point. Um, I believe, I could be wrong, so I'm not saying this as a matter of fact, but I believe there's somewhere in scripture where it talks about how there was no wiser king that came before or after Solomon. And the queen of Sheba hears about the wisdom, comes to Solomon, sees like, not just hears the wisdom, but sees the actual evidence of his wisdom. Um, And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus and Solomon actually built the house of God. Solomon is referred to as the one who builds the house in wisdom. I think Proverbs talks about how wisdom builds her house. And in Hebrews, we'll see that Jesus actually builds a better house, not a physical dwelling place. In terms of like a building, Jesus builds a household, a family. Uh, He makes way for us to be a part of the family of God through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, He builds a house for the name of God, and we are the temple of God collectively as his people. Um, And so Solomon here is a lesser version of Jesus. He gives us a glimpse of Christ, and Christ is the greater Solomon. He has greater wisdom. He builds a greater house in that greater wisdom. Um, And so let's go to Luke chapter 2. Where this wisdom, uh, we see like in the very beginning of Jesus' life, like as a child, as a a young preteen. I think he's 11-ish, I don't know, 12, he's 12. So, um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says the child, Jesus, he actually grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. And I think these two right here are greatly connected. The favor of God in the form of what? Having the wisdom of God. If you go down to verse 52, um, Jesus actually is teaching the teachers of the law, if I'm not mistaken. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. When the feast was ended, uh, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, right? But supposing uh, they should not be having parenting classes for anyone. They need to learn. (laughs) They're not good parents supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. How do you lose the son of God? No idea. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, three days, they found Jesus where? In the temple, sitting with the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. So Jesus here is in the Father's house, um, asking questions, learning, growing in wisdom. Verse 52, he actually increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus, uh, though God in the flesh, though divine, that doesn't eliminate his, he really took on human flesh and subjected himself to the the very condition of, of our humanity, which is also apparently the need to learn. The need to grow in, in knowledge. And Jesus actually does. He grows and increases in wisdom and in favor with God. So the wisdom and favor there are, are connected. Colossians 1 is another good example. Uh, and we're just looking at how Jesus um, and wisdom so far are connected in the New Testament. He grows in wisdom. Um, he already has. He's filled with wisdom as a, as a kid. Um, And he actually presents himself in Matthew chapter 12 as the one who has greater wisdom than Solomon. Take that, Solomon. Colossians chapter two, it says, um, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding And of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now look at how Jesus is described here. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom and knowledge are found, hidden, in the person of Christ. That's odd. Go to chapter 1, verse 27. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So God reveals his mystery that was once concealed to humanity. He reveals it, first of all, in the person of his son, right? The mystery that was concealed in the prophets and the writings and the Torah, that was hidden. Now it's, now it's revealed in Christ. And the mystery is specifically this, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of our coming glory. All the different dimensions of that mystery, but mainly it revolves around Jesus, so Jesus is, if we're going to be like, if we're going to simplify this down to its most basic form, the mystery of God is Christ Jesus, who is concealed in the scriptures, who is hidden and his work and what he would do and what we would get to you know, enjoy because of his work. There are glimpses of it for sure, but the totality of it is concealed in terms of we didn't perfectly understand what God was doing if we just had the Old Testament without Jesus having done his work. But now that we do, see what Christ has done. We can look at the Old Testament and see all the wisdom and the knowledge um, that was hidden, not just in the plan of God, but in the person of Christ and his wisdom. And so what's interesting here is all the treasures. So it's like there's no true, lasting, heavenly wisdom or knowledge apart from Jesus. That doesn't mean there's nothing else to know. You can know things about this life. You can know things that Uh, you can know about technology, but these things terminate on themselves. They have an end. They don't matter in eternity. True wisdom and knowledge that is eternal in nature, that actually benefits your life and changes the world around you and comes from God divinely, that real eternal substantial wisdom and knowledge, those treasures are found hidden in Christ, in Christ. So not only is Jesus presented as, you know, the wisdom of the Old Testament, and everything that we see laced within the Hebrew scriptures, pointing to Christ. But even now, as believers, if you want wisdom and knowledge, you have to know him. He is the mystery, he is wisdom. Uh, The second Peter will put it a certain way. It says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that you need to live godly, that includes wisdom. That includes knowledge. How has God granted to us these things? Well, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the one who calls us is the one who grants us everything that we need through relationship with him. And that includes wisdom. So if you really want to walk in wisdom, I know some of you are like hungry for wisdom. You're like, I wanna be the wisest man on the planet. I wanna be the wisest woman on the planet, but of course the most humble. For those of you that long for wisdom, okay, you desperately need to know Christ. But it's not like, I wanna know Jesus for the sake of having wisdom. Wisdom is a byproduct of knowing Christ. Wisdom is secondary to actually knowing the one who is perfect wisdom. He's better. Like if I had to compare like, What's more valuable to me? Wisdom itself, which arguably you might say, isn't Jesus' wisdom? But just for the sake of argument, let's just say I, I, had, I could choose between I can have all the wisdom in the world or no Christ. Jesus is still more valuable. He's the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate you know, delight and desire of my heart, more than wisdom. But there is wisdom to be had, wisdom for you to experience as you know him. God is not calling you to come and know him for the sake of just having wisdom. Again, wisdom is going to be a secondary thing that falls under uh, Jesus as our ultimate treasure. He's everything. But there's wisdom. There's wisdom found in him. And that wisdom is best experienced and it's best lived out in relationship with Christ. So I don't just come to Jesus for the wisdom I need to go and live life on my own. I come to Jesus, I know him, I gain wisdom, I gain understanding, and then as I walk with him, that wisdom and and understanding I think becomes best applied. So I don't just lean on him for wisdom, I lean on him for how to actually exercise that wisdom and understanding. Because again, wisdom is actually applied knowledge. And so I don't just need him to show me and give me insight, I need him to show me how to apply this knowledge appropriately. And go, Lord, in this, in this scenario, how do I best operate in wisdom? I know we, we often like just want to take the blessings of God and run. It's like, if I just know God well enough, I can have enough wisdom to not need him anymore. No, wisdom is actually staying as close to him as possible because you understand that he provides you the framework and direction for how to actually walk in wisdom. He tells me how to live. He doesn't just show me and go, now go do it. He walks with me. He partners with humanity. He holds your hand. He wants you to follow him. And so I want to be led by the spirit. So practically, Jesus as our wisdom, this isn't going to be like a super long message. Jesus as our wisdom and the one whom all wisdom is found in um, is going to look a certain way in our life. So let me take you to Colossians chapter one now. And this is what Paul prays for the Colossian church. Okay, this is what he prays. He's heard about their faithfulness. He's heard about their love. He's heard about their obedience, all the good stuff. Now he goes, hey, from the day we heard of what? Of their love in the spirit, of their faith, of all the things they're doing, we have not ceased to pray for you. Hmm. Asking God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So notice the knowledge, the wisdom, and the understanding there are paired. So I Paul prays, I pray, Father, that you would fill the Colossian church with a knowledge of your will, which is found in all spiritual wisdom. not worth, Not earthly wisdom, not worldly wisdom, not false wisdom that presents itself as real wisdom, spiritual wisdom. Wisdom that does not originate with this world system. Wisdom that doesn't originate with human beings wisdom that actually originates in God and is given to humanity, should they ask, and understanding in order to, watch, as a purpose, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If you really want to live a life that is worthy, I hate the terminology like live up to your potential, but that seems to be a fitting statement for here. There is there is a capacity on your life. There's There's an ideal purpose for you to fulfill, right? There's an ideal life for you to live. God has for you a life. He has a purpose, he has a calling. You can either live up to that, you can get as close to that as possible, you can get not so close. There are all these different degrees of how much of the calling of God on your life did you actually fulfill? How much of God's purpose for you did you walk in? So if you wanna live the fullest, most abundant life God has for you, it requires you to live a life that is worthy of him. And that requires knowledge wisdom. Now again, knowledge is the data, the information. Wisdom is applying that information and that data well, right? It's applied knowledge. The understanding is the actual insight on how to actually apply it. So that's why I think it's helpful when I think of understanding as being the bridge between knowledge and wisdom. And if you want to walk in a manner that's worthy to God, you have to know what honors him. You have to understand how in this scenario I can honor him and then do it. Walk in wisdom, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you, not that we were qualified in and of ourselves, but he declared us qualified, right? Right? He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, apparently, walking in a manner worthy of God includes bearing good fruit in every good work—not just at home, not just at school, not just at church. When I'm around other believers, that can really, you know, compliment me on the fruit I'm bearing. But in every good work, in the smallest things, bearing good fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God—that's a part of living a life that's fully pleasing to Him. Living in the strength that He provides, right? Enduring having patience with joy and living thankfully i want to live with a with a sense of gratitude that honors god but if i don't understand that and if i don't know that how can i go and walk in that you see how how living a life that's really the fullest life possible that is that requires you to know what honors god that requires you to understand the heart and the character of god Otherwise, it's just it's just empty information if it's not applied. It's, it's useless. It doesn't do anything. God teaches you to actually accomplish something in your life, in the lives around you, in the world at large. When God teaches you and shows you something of himself, it should result in some kind of life change that actually affects the world and the kingdom. And so it's not just knowledge in and of itself. It's I want to know the Father primarily. That's ultimate. But what happens because of that knowledge as I understand who God is and how I should function in the world, then I go and do it, which is to apply the knowledge in the form of wisdom. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul will pray something very similar. Okay, something very similar to what he prayed for the Colossian church. Uh, he goes, for this reason, I've, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I've heard of your love toward all the saints. Because of that, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Sounds a lot like what he said to the Colossian church. Remembering you in my prayers. Paul doesn't just copy and paste letters to different churches. He actually means what he says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here's what he prays, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom. The spirit of wisdom that filled Christ. The spirit of wisdom that filled Joshua. Spirit of wisdom that filled Solomon. The spirit of wisdom that filled Moses. Fill in the blanks. Daniel, Joseph. The spirit of wisdom is something that we can walk in and be filled with and have more of, not in terms of presence or actual reality, but experiential. Like I can experience more of the wisdom God has for me. I can walk in more of that. He may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Remember how I said that God reveals through his son, truth, wisdom, wisdom actually comes through revelation. As God reveals himself to you, He reveals His truth to you. You come to know what wisdom looks like so you can actually appropriately apply the knowledge you have. And apparently, once again, just like Peter verifies, just like Paul says, wisdom, revelation, are found in the knowledge of Him. It is oh so simple. It really is. It is oh so simple. Wisdom is found. Knowledge, insight, revelation found in Christ but it requires you to actually pursue a relationship with him, to intentionally desire for more of him and pursue him and go after him and actually make him the desire of your heart and prioritize him above all else. It requires you to put effort into your relationship. What do you know? This is not a one-sided you know, relationship. It's a two-way street, isn't it? And then he'll go on to talk about like the result of that, having the eyes of your heart's enlightened which refers to a spiritual insight at the heart level, right? So um, now let me show you a few things. There's there's a contrast between the wisdom of the world, which is no wisdom at all, but it presents itself as wisdom, that kind of fake wisdom and the true wisdom of God. There's a difference. And I think Ephesians 3.10 is a good place to start. God has designed the church, the body, People of God in such a way, okay, his family, so that look, verse 10, there's a mystery that's been hidden in the mind of God, but now it's been revealed. And once you know that mystery and believe in Christ and come into the faith, here's the purpose for which God has brought you into his family. One of the purposes, right? So God's designed to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Who created all things so that through the church, let's highlight that, through the church, the manifold, the multi dimensional wisdom of God might now, this keyword, now be made known to the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly places. There are spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, both who are in rebellion against God. And who are on god's side there are good spiritual beings and there are bad spiritual beings there's a hierarchy in both kingdoms it seems like both the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of god has a hierarchy there's structure and order there's some kind of goal and right, so there are rulers and authorities i think primarily what paul has in mind here are the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places those spiritual rebels that are coming against god and his son and what's being made known to those spiritual rulers and authorities is the manifold wisdom of God, the mystery that was hidden for ages in God. God has chosen strategically, is what God has said, I will reveal my multidimensional wisdom and the mystery that's been hidden, I'll reveal that through the church to these spiritual rulers and authorities. God didn't have a personal conference with them. God didn't call them on his divine phone. He didn't meet with them and be like, hey guys, by the way, Y'all are screwed. He let the church, the people of God, actually display his infinite wisdom. Which isn't to, you know, minimize what Christ has done at all. But this is his chosen method, is that he saves the people, and then those people become um, a display case of the wisdom that was once hidden to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God's like, how will I reveal my wisdom in the mystery? Well, part of that method involves the church. And so that wisdom is beautiful. That wisdom can be known, and that wisdom can be displayed. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to start to look at, um, yes, how Jesus is wisdom. But the verse that we um, looked at, it was verse 30, where Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. So if you want to describe Jesus, he's not just wise, he is fundamentally, he's wisdom. This verse right here that we're using for this whole series, it's actually connected to this whole section. So we should probably read the whole section to make sense of what he's saying. Look what Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, like he's not trying to impress people. He's not using big, high, lofty words that are like, "Ooh, wow, you definitely got an A in vocabulary class. He's not doing that. He's not about impressing. He's not about drawing people to himself. He's not about his own, you know, um, image. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There are some preachers who are more concerned with sounding eloquent and having those solid one-liners that like make the crowd go, yes, yes. They're not they're, they're not really concerned with actually like preaching the gospel. They're more about using the gospel to draw people to themselves and making an empire for themselves, and so they'll use eloquent wisdom that goes right above the heads of his people. And if something is too high for someone to grasp, it can't be brought down to actually apply to their life. And so there are a lot of preachers who aren't about application; they're about impressing. And Paul's the opposite. He's I could care couldn't care less <laughs> about what you think of my eloquent wisdom or the way that i communicate i i don't want to empty the cross of its power because if you if you look to me and you're in awe of me and you're impressed with my gift of teaching then all of a sudden you're looking and trusting more in me than you are in jesus whom i'm preaching verse 18 says the word of the cross is folly foolishness to those who are perishing right but to us who are being saved it's the power of god So you got two different kinds of people listening to the same message, uh, but it's being interpreted in two different ways. One person goes, ah, this is the power of God, I believe. The other person interprets that same message and goes, hmm, this is dumb. Why would anyone live for this? This is garbage. So there's two different ways to interpret Christ, the mystery of the gospel. You can either look at him as an obstacle between you and what you really want, or he is the power of god the message that saves is worth your life for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise so what does god destroy okay he's destroying the wisdom of the wise cited from isaiah 29 14. nice i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart When's the last time you used the word thwart i can barely say that thwart so this is god speaking through the word of the cross, God's doing something. That's why he uses a message about a Jewish carpenter being nailed to a cross as a criminal and dying only to rise again three days later. That message seems scandalous. It seems ridiculous but it's wisdom to those who are really being saved and going, yeah, 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 this is, this is power right here. I need this. And to people who are like, I don't want anything to do with this, they interpret it as foolishness. And by using this kind of a message to save, God's actually destroying the wisdom of the wise or their perceived wisdom, that false wisdom of the world, where everyone who thinks they're smart and they're philosophers and everyone has a TikTok now where they can like share their, their lofty high intellectual opinions. God's destroying the wise and the wisdom of this world with a message that is not presented as something that tickles their desire for wisdom, right? God doesn't give the people of this world what they want. He gives them what they need. They want uh, impressive speech. They want uh, killer debates. And these, uh, they want, you know, I don't know, the wisdom of the world. God doesn't give them that. Instead, he overthrows it. And he goes, where's the one who is wise? Divine smack talk. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So there is a wisdom of the world that is garbage (laughs) by its very essence. And it's actually overthrown and overshadowed by the real wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth nailed to a Roman cross as a criminal and then comes to life three days later after dying. That, that, that message of Christ crucified is the real wisdom of God that actually destroys the wisdom of the world. Since in the wisdom of God, it might be worth highlighting here since we're really focusing on wisdom here, the world didn't know God through its own perceived wisdom, right? So the world has a, a standard of wisdom that is no wisdom at all. The world has a definition of wisdom that is not wisdom. And so it's operating by a false kind of wisdom, its own perceived wisdom. And it's trying to know God through that humanistic wisdom that is actually sourced in the enemy and the devil and the kingdom of darkness, which we'll get to in James 3. But that wisdom, if, you, if you're functioning by that, trying to find God, like the people at the Tower of Babel trying to get to God by their own wisdom and, and efforts and, and strength, you won't get to him. You won't know him through that. You actually have to abandon that and um, receive the real wisdom of God through the cross. So (laughs) to come to know God, you have to abandon any perceived sense of wisdom you thought you had to realize you're not wise. He is and you need help because the wisdom of the world wants you to think you're the hero and you need no one's help and you're the man and you're independent and you need to lean on no one else but yourself. You're self-sufficient and the wisdom of God says, humble yourself. You need me you're desperately in need for me. God presents wisdom um, in the form of, almost like, God is not speaking the language of this world, if we can use that terminology, because the world's operating by a kind of wisdom that's actually garbage and demonic, James three will tell us, and it's trying to know God through that. So, So God speaks a different language. It's called heavenly wisdom. And those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and are actually like open to the truth of God and the wisdom of God, and they're willing to ditch their own perceived wisdom Uh, they'll interpret the cross as real salvation instead of foolishness. So since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it actually pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Because remember, the world will look at the the cross and go, "That's, that's foolishness. Why would you ever dedicate your life to that? And God's going, I'm saving the world through a message that appears foolish, that sounds foolish to those who don't want truth, to those who don't want God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, so God gives them neither. Right? The Jews are like, we want signs. And Jesus goes, the only sign you're getting is Jonah. Just like he was three days in the belly of the whale, fish, sea creature. And then he came back to life. I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. And I'll come back to life. And then the Gentiles are like, we want wisdom, philosophy, debate us. You want to learn new things, because that's how they taught. And God goes, "Mm, let me give you my son crucified. So he doesn't give them what they want. God's not an ear-tickling God. He doesn't tell people what they want to hear. He doesn't give people what they want. He gives people what they need and what they need to hear. And there will be preachers in the last days who are like, "Eh, I'm more concerned with my audience liking me, as opposed to the people of God growing in the truth, even if, what I have to say initially offends them. So Paul is not about that. He ain't playing that game. We preach Christ crucified. And you know what Jesus crucified is? He's a stumbling block to Jews. Like he's in their way. And they're going to trip over him because they're building something that God's actually not building. And they're going to reject the cornerstone because they're too busy building something God never told them to build. And they're not even aligned with the heart of God anymore. So he's gonna be a stump, Jesus will be a stumbling block to the Jews. He'll be something, someone that they trip over while trying to go after what they really want. And foolishness to Gentiles. Now, now, this is how an unbelieving Jew will interpret Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. They'll go, He's just in the way of what we as the people of Israel have always been called. And then Gentiles will look at Jesus or hear the message and go, that's foolishness. And when Paul goes and preaches, I believe it's in Athens. And then he's, he's, he's preaching in like one of the bigger, I don't know, stadiums. Um, and a bunch of people gather. They go, what is this babbler talking about the resurrection? No one rises from the dead. And they mock him. But then some believe. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, those who are called. As opposed to those who reject the call. Those who are called. They hear the message, whether they're Jewish or Greek. They hear the message and they interpret it as, oh, this is Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jesus is not wise only. We can't merely say Jesus is a wise guru. He's wisdom. He's power. He's power. And the message about him is the wise message of God that has the power to save. Not just in and of the words themselves, but because that message is about the one who is power and wisdom from God. And God has validated the message about his son to bring salvation to people who believe. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. When Jesus comes and he comes as a Jewish carpenter and he's not impressive in looks and he's not necessarily impressive in 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 anything you know uh fleshly or worldly he, there's no form that we should be like ah he's he's glorious he just came as a humble jewish carpenter as an itinerant preacher with nowhere to lay his head and he preached the truth and he validated that with signs and miracles and he loved perfectly and what was perceived as foolishness when you look at Christ and go, ah, if you interpret him as foolishness, the sad thing is you're actually looking at pure, perfect wisdom. The problem is your reasoning faculties are corrupted by sin. So what you are looking at and interpreting as foolishness, the reason you're calling it foolishness when it's really wisdom is because you're actually the fool operating by a foolish sense of wisdom that is no wisdom at all. It's humanistic, worldly wisdom at its core. And so you interpret Jesus through that lens And you miss out on what God's really doing. So the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This isn't to say God is foolish. This is to say that what is presented as foolishness from God, the message of Christ, it appears foolish. It's actually wiser than all the wisdom of men that you could accumulate and gather, still wiser. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Not to say God is weak, not even to say that there's such a thing as the lowest part of God this is talking about Jesus presented in weakness crucified carrying a cross being tortured being spit on and mocked and whipped and nailed I mean the Jews interpreted that as utter weakness if you're God come on down if you're really the son of God you'll be rescued and they interpret that as weakness as opposed to real strength for Jesus to lay his life down in the midst of temptation and mockers that was real strength That was infinite strength on full display to lay his life down and then resurrect and through letting his own creation condemn him to the cross, which appeared weak, that was real strength. That actually would bring salvation to men. He goes, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So remember, the standard of the world is different than the standard of God. What the world defines as wisdom and recognizes as true wisdom is not always in line with what God says is real wisdom. The world judges by appearance. The world judges by uh, reputation and accolades and success and achievements and influence. God, you know, he actually like, he doesn't judge according to appearance, but he looks straight to the heart of the matter and the person. Look, when God called you, not many were powerful. (laughs) Not many of you were of noble birth, right? When God called you, were you impressive? Did God choose you because you were impressive? Because there's something about you that God was like, Dang, I need that guy on my team. No, not many of us had anything by the world's standards that was worth choosing. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So God chooses us out of the world to walk the ways of Jesus, which looks foolish, looks weak. And he uses that to actually shame the wise. Just like Stephen standing before the... Uh, the elders and the priests, right? And I believe the high priest was there. Just like Stephen standing there full of wisdom, they couldn't refute him. They could not contradict his wisdom. And he stood in wisdom and his wisdom, which appeared foolish and weak and anti-Jewish, it actually shamed their wisdom. It put their wisdom to shame. So God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I don't want to identify with what the world calls strength. I don't want to identify with what the world calls wisdom because frankly, the world doesn't need more of that. The world needs what God brings through his son, which will appear weak, which will appear foolish. And that actually overthrows and overrides any of their perceived wisdom and their perceived strength. And it puts them to shame, not for the sake of being like, it sucks to suck, huh? But for the sake of calling them out into the light, out of the darkness, they need to see something different. God chose what is low, what is despised in the world, even the things that aren't. Like those things that are not fill in the blank, like the world would say strong, wise, attractive, influential, notable status, uh, things that are not those things to bring to nothing the things that are. So whatever the world recognizes as awesome and spectacular, God will use the opposite, To actually kind of undermine those things the world calls amazing. To expose it for what it is. It's like God is is really peeling back the wrapping paper so that you see what's really underneath. So the world goes, we're so strong and wise and influential and we don't need God. And then through the church, through the weak, foolish, Christ-like living (laughs) that we engage in, we're actually exposing the world for what it really is tearing back the wallpaper to show you these are just bare walls that you've covered in something that looks like wisdom and it ain't doing nothing for you. So that no one can boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then he'll go on to talk about how he didn't come and preach again with impressive lofty words, but he actually came in weakness. He didn't come using the lingo of the culture that would impress them. He purposely didn't sound scholarly and intelligent and smart on purpose to bring the message down to the lowest level of understanding in the room. In other words, Paul is someone who could have sounded smarter than he did, but he chose not to sound smart and impressive for the sake of relating with the lowest of the low so anyone could understand. He simplified. He made the message of the cross as simple and as basic, not robbing it of its power, but so that anyone could understand so that there were no words in the way of them understanding what he was saying. If you clap for something you don't understand, you walk away unchanged. It doesn't do you any good. So Paul's not about that. Paul's about, I will say it and sound like a caveman if I have to, if it means you get to walk away transformed. So he talks about how among the mature, he imparts wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. So what God brings is a foreign wisdom to this world, right? You and I walk in wisdom when we walk according to the truth. The world looks at that, scoffs, mocks, laughs, and goes, are you really following Uh, A made-up religion 2,000 years ago, and these people, we do not even know who they are, and they wrote a book. Oh, anyone can write a book in a dark room. Uh, And they make fun, and they laugh, and they scorn. We're walking in the wisdom that they're perceiving as foolishness. And apparently, this age, this world, and the rulers of this age, um, who are doomed to pass away, they, they actually don't understand it. It's not of this world. It's not. It's from God. It's foreign. And often when you come across something that's foreign, um, you either run or you're confused or you just make fun of it because it's different. So the world's going to... I want you to know, like, if you are asking for wisdom, like if you really are, you're asking to look fundamentally different from the world of unbelievers around you. And you're actually asking potentially for more uh, people to maybe come out of your life and walk away from you because what you're living isn't aligned with how they want to live and your wisdom to them is perceived as foolishness and like offensive and insulting and triggering me and they might leave. And you're opening yourself up to that by saying, I want to follow the wisdom of God. But in that wisdom, God is accomplishing stuff. You got to be okay with it. Verse seven, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That doesn't mean no one can know it. It means there's spiritual insight and understanding required and it looks like humility, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the wisdom of God, which was once secret hidden in the Old Testament, now revealed in Christ to the unbelieving mind that's corrupted by sin and does not want the truth and will look at any evidence for God and reinterpret it to be something that validates their sin. They'll keep doing that. So if you present real wisdom of God, they'll go, oh, foolishness. Oh, you're just defensive. Oh, you're just against the culture. Oh, you're just unloving. And they'll keep interpreting it as something it's not because they've chosen to miss out on the wisdom God's presenting. So to them, it's hidden. It's secret. There's nothing on on God's end, but God, help them see. They're choosing not to. Two people can see the same exact situation and interpret it two different ways. Right? We've all experienced this. where you are like, that's not what happened at all. Like, that car actually legitimately, like, destroyed that cat in the middle of the road. The cat is not alive. And your sister's like, no, she's alive. I swear, she's in the tree, she's meowing. No, I watched that cat get obliterated. So you can see two, two people can see the same situation and reinterpret it uh, in different ways. And go, uh, you know, so I think that that's what's happening here is the world and the rulers of this age listening to the same message we do, that we go, how do you not see the salvation in this message and the hope and the glory and the joy? They're l- hearing that message through the filter of what I have to give up and what I'm not willing to give up and what I love more than God, not truth, but actually anything that validates my own way of life so I can just live in self, you know, self-deceived uh, convenience and all about me and live self-centered. They want whatever validates their own way of life as opposed to wanting truth that might actually come against the way they're living. So none of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So we could go on and talk about how the spirit of God, you know, searches the depths of God. But the point is, I don't believe this refers just to the physical rulers of Israel and Rome. When they crucified Christ, they had no idea what they were doing. Jesus does say, forgive them for they know not what they do but I believe the rulers of this age, which is this temporary world system, the way the world is right now, under the influence of darkness, with the enemy ruling for now until Jesus kicks him off his high horse, which effectively has been set in motion by the cross already, but we have yet to see the full manifestation of that. The rulers of this age don't, they did not understand what they were doing to Christ. I don't believe that just refers to the people, but the actual spirits behind the people The governing spirits, um, which the spiritual rulers and authorities we saw in Ephesians, I think is also in mind here. Are there spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that are in rebellion to God and manipulating people, influencing their decisions? Sure. So I think also, because the mystery was hidden from the kingdom of darkness, they didn't know what they were doing by moving people to condemn Jesus to the cross. Which, by the way, was perfectly in line with what God wanted, to save humanity through his son's death. And the powers of darkness think they win. Sadly, they got checkmated by God. They played into his hand and they effectively ended themselves. If you get on to 1 Corinthians 3, which is just a great book for wisdom in and of itself, there's a lot of distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, okay? But because Jesus is wisdom, um, 1 Corinthians 3.16 will say, don't you know you are God's temple? You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. What makes us collectively as the temple, what makes us the temple, both collectively and individually, right? we're, we're living stones, right? But we're also the temple. Um, well, it's what what makes us the temple is the spirit of God dwelling in us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. So we are holy to God, set apart. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise, here, this is the key, thinks he's wise. So he's defined wisdom the way the world does in this age. right? It seems to be a worldly wisdom of this age. It's it's sourced in this age, in this world system. So this is someone who... Uh, seems to be arrogant right seems to have an ego seems to be very prideful thinking they're wise. let him become a fool so that he may become wise So it looks like the way the way to transition from fake worldly wisdom into God's wisdom is the admission that I'm a fool and to actually humble myself and realize, I'm not as wise as I thought. I don't meet your standard. I can't get into heaven. You are real. I need you to save me. And you come into the heavenly wisdom of God. That's you becoming a fool. Is admitting your own foolishness. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So there is a wisdom of this world. And to God, it's absolute lunacy. (laughs) It's foolishness. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. Right? Like a... Like a hunter going out and catching, hunting animals. It seems like God is catching the wise in their craftiness. It becomes like a snare to themselves. Their own wisdom, what, they, what they're what they prideful about, is actually what's imprisoning them. Uh, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. So for God to catch the wise in their craftiness is, is just to, um, uh, where, where does it say that? The foolishness of God puts the wisdom of the world... To shame. I think it was in chapter 1. Yeah. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So it's a shaming and exposing Not to shame just for the sake of you feeling inferior. That's not the point. It's to turn you to Jesus. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So you either define wisdom biblically. Or you define wisdom the way the world does. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they're futile. So let no, let no one boast in men. All things are yours. And this is all within an argument of Paul saying, why are you guys identifying with people more than Christ? You know, human teachers, Apollos, Cephas, Paul, like Jesus is everything. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We'll end in James chapter 3 today. And this is going to be a pretty clear distinction between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So, James 3. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Good question. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay, so there's a meekness that comes with wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Like it's not from the Holy Spirit. It's not spiritual in nature. It's actually earthly. In fact, beyond just coming from this world, it's demonic. (laughs) Like it's actually coming from the kingdom of darkness. It's sourced in, uh, you might say, a demonic theology, which makes God out to be something he's not or denies Christ. So there is godly wisdom, which is going to be... Godly wisdom is without jealousy. It's without selfish ambition. It's without boasting. It actually is meekness and humility. It's actually having good conduct and works that accompany that, that wisdom. I don't think it's prideful to admit God has given you wisdom. I think it's prideful to identify with that wisdom as if to be better or superior, or now God loves me more. And it almost becomes a boasting point for you. And usually that in and of itself will lead to jealousy. Like, oh, they're wiser than me, I gotta be wiser than them. Or selfish ambition, where your wisdom is pointed just at you. And it's all about you gaining and profiting, or a kind of boasting and pride. That's not wisdom from from God, it's not. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, so here's, if you're like, I wanna walk in wisdom, I don't just wanna know God, and know about him and walk with him like what how do I discern whether I'm walking in wisdom or not well purity what promotes peace now you can only promote peace as far as you're able to uh gentleness open to reason right understanding like being willing to be wrong (laughs) full of mercy this is not how the world will define wisdom uh The world will define wisdom as whichever side wins the debate. Whichever side has the loudest voice and gets the point across the best. Whichever side has the biggest following. Not how God defines wisdom. And notice, if Jesus is wisdom, think about all these different attributes of what godly wisdom is and then relate it back to Jesus. Purity, peace, peace. My peaceable, making for what is peace. Gentle. Uh, Jesus says, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Open to reason, understanding. Full of mercy and good fruits. Right? Impartial. Hmm. Interesting. And sincere. Sincere. Now, typically, we won't think of wisdom as having these attributes. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Primarily what's in mind here is what makes for peace. Now this isn't I'm trying to get everyone to like me so that I don't have any enemies. This is whatever I'm doing, I want it to be purposed to actually build and unify the people of God together. That doesn't mean I compromise the truth. That doesn't mean I'm willing to actually like, uh, twist the scriptures to make people understand and let's just all get along, let's all have our own view. No, I stand on the truth. But what I'm doing and how I'm living um, and how I use the truth, is to actually make for peace within the body. And if it separates, if if it divides, if it exposes, if it convicts, so be it. But at least I'm walking in wisdom and there's purity attached to that. Real wisdom is pure. There's peace attached to that. When I'm walking in wisdom, it will make peace with the people that it's supposed to make peace with and it will actually pull away from and divide from the people who are not of that wisdom. And actually me walking in wisdom will draw a clear delineation in the sand between godly wisdom and demonic wisdom. It'll actually separate you from that, which is worldly wisdom. So you might actually cause a rift between you and certain people because they're walking in worldly wisdom. And if you pursue godly wisdom, they're not attached to that. So they're going to kind of pull away from you. Godly wisdom is gentle. It's not this aggressive, you know, thing. (laughs) It's open to reason. Godly wisdom is not just seeking to end the debate. Godly wisdom is not just trying to prove people wrong and trying to be right and trying to show them why I'm right, godly wisdom is open to reason. That means I'm understanding. There, there's charity involved, full of mercy. I, again, we, we don't typically associate these characteristics with, with godly wisdom. We think of wisdom as just do what God says. Well, God says to be pure. God says to make for peace within the church and build and edify and strengthen. God says to actually be gentle like Christ and not aggressive, not violent, Open to reason, be charitable, understanding, be full of mercy. Like even though you could do something to someone who who really did something to you, you choose not to. Uh, Have good fruit, bear good fruit in your life, the fruits of the spirit. Impartial, sincere. This word impartial, I wanna make sure I define it right. Cause that'd be silly if I didn't, huh? That wouldn't be wise. sometimes the word partial means something a little different or impartial yeah without making distinctions almost like a favoritism kind of thing like i'll only show love to you know karen because she bought me a pie yesterday but then jared he didn't buy me a pie so the minute he wrongs me i'm out of his life it's like this Wisdom that doesn't make distinctions between people. Who's worth my love? Who's worth forgiveness? Um, And sincere. Like genuine. And then peace is going to be the harvest of righteousness for the wisdom that's sown. So Jesus is wisdom. We know that. Jesus is wisdom. And he's all throughout the Old Testament as wisdom. All the wisdom that you see, it points to Christ. Um, And the New Testament testifies to Jesus being the wisest wisdom itself. Not just a wise person, wisdom itself, no one else can claim that. And then wisdom is going to look for us different than the world, different than the world. It has to. Otherwise you have to really ask, am I living according to the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of God? That doesn't mean every time you walk in the wisdom of God, it will it will push ungodly people away. It's not like, oh no, I'm not walking in wisdom because no one's abusing me. It means part of walking in wisdom sometimes does include people will leave you and treat you poorly because they're operating by a different wisdom than you are. So that's who Jesus is today. Um, And forevermore, but specifically today because we're talking about Jesus is wisdom. And then uh, Wednesday, I don't know which one we're going to talk about, but we'll continue the series on Jesus is. For now, you can head over to abovereproachministry.com and find all of the free resources that we have available. Um, You can find our free Bible study worksheets, our free Bible study classes online, again, free. Free Bible study devotionals, free Bible study workshops, our online church, which is completely free, come join. Um, You can get a copy of my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant Fruitful Life This Side of Heaven. Um, Again, if you join our online church, there's a lot going on. So jump in and watch the video on how to navigate our Discord server. And then also, okay, also, if you'd like to give to this ministry, everything we're doing is designed to move people towards Jesus. Whether you're lost, we want to get you to Jesus. Whether you're found, we want to get you more at the feet of Jesus. We want more people to become as close to Christ as possible, as much like Christ as possible. So we're doing that as a family. And and the main way we do that is by teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So we're equipping people, right? We're training people. Um, and if you want to get behind our mission, this is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. Um, and if you want to support what we're doing to create all these free resources around the world to anyone, uh, resourcing the church, building people up, training disciples, you can give one time, um, through PayPal, Cash App or Venmo, or right here through your debit or credit card on the donate page. You can be a monthly supporter through Patreon and there's a bunch of month, monthly exclusive benefits that you get, as well as you can just buy some church merch. We have Above Reproach apparel, so you can get um, mugs, shirts, sweatshirts. A few of our digital products can be found here as well. And then um, that's everything that we have to offer. You can check out our theological beliefs, um, a little bit about me and our mission and what we're doing. And I think that is it for today. All right. I'll see you guys Wednesday as we continue this series on Jesus Is. Today we found out that he's wisdom. So go and walk in wisdom today, guys. I love you all and keep moving towards Jesus.